The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, April the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We didn't discuss Brexit at all on our Wednesday podcast this week, but a lot has been continuing to happen on that front. Uh, UK Prime Minister Theresa May held a crisis cabinet meeting before she initiated negotiations with Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn on a kind of a cross-party understanding on the way forward, although it's pretty unclear still as to what that might be. Today we wanted to have a look at what prospect of success, if any, that process might have, also at the strains within the Labour Party itself and the dynamics more broadly within the House of Commons, including what role the DUP might yet have to play in the coming days and weeks. To consider all of this and more, I'm joined by Helen Thompson, the Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge, and our own London editor, Dennis Staunton. But first, hot off the presses within the last hour or so, Theresa May sent a letter to the EU requesting a further extension. Dennis... Yes, she's asked for an extension until June the 30th, and she said that she would hope that uh, Britain would be in a position to leave the European Union earlier than that, before the European Parliament elections. But she said that she understood that if Britain was still to be a member on May 23rd, it would have to participate in the European elections. And so she said she was going to take the necessary steps, including the order in the council that they have to move to set the date for those elections. So she said that uh, she then laid out the justification for this, which was this process that's going on between uh, her government and the Labour Party. And what she said was, uh, as she had said in her statement uh, on television a few days ago, she said they're they're trying to find a common approach, which they could both endorse in Parliament. But if that fails, what they will try to do is to find a limited number of options which will be put to MPs in an indicative vote and that both sides, the idea was be both sides would agree to abide by the outcome of these votes. But then in the letter, she uh, said something more to Donald Tusk and she said that an important part of the process would be the government agreeing with the opposition a programme for the bill. So what she's hoping to do is to bind Labour into a commitment to support every stage of this uh, legislation and all the implementation legislation to ensure it can get through. So what she's saying is, uh, we are asking for the extension until the end of June, but we want to be able to leave before the European elections, if possible. And our ambition is not to have to uh, hold these elections. And obviously what, what this extension to June 30th gives uh, a, a bit of a, a leeway for would be uh, that uh, because the European Parliament doesn't take its seat until the 2nd of June, that even if they had to hold the elections, there's a possibility that those MEPs who get elected would never actually go to Brussels. Or Helen, that process that Dennis describes there... Um implies a certain optimism about the outcome of these these talks between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. Um, is that an optimism that you would share? <laughs> to be honest, I think that it, it, it's very difficult to make a judgment about whether there's any grounds for um, optimism uh, at the moment. Um, the Labour leadership is in a pretty difficult position, as obviously is the, the government, because both parties have got you know significant numbers of MPs who are extremely unhappy about what is you know about what is happening is is that in the labor party there's a clear consistency of MPs who don't want to be in a position where they are asked to forsake a second referendum 
or that the second referendum is put as an option to Parliament in ways that is that it's not going to have any chances chance of um, passing. And Theresa May has got to deliver votes from a parliamentary party that's got any number of extraordinarily angry and unhappy Brexiteers um, amongst it. So there's a question about whether the two leaderships and the negotiating teams can reach an agreement, which I, I think that is, is difficult in itself. But then there's a question about whether if they reach an agreement, they can take enough of each of them can take enough of their MPs with them in order for what they come up with to end up going through the House of Commons. Maybe you could, for our listeners, Helen, dig a little bit deeper into those divisions in the Labour Party, because we focused an awful lot, obviously, on the on the Conservative Party over the last few months. But the sort of the the rather difficult and, to be fair, successful walk which Labour under Jeremy Corbyn has undertaken over the last two or three years, where it's it won seats in both you know strongly leave constituencies and strongly remain constituencies uh, at the last general election, and has managed to sort of muddle along with that, where it has a a, a membership which is very pro-second referendum, uh, parliamentary parties, which is very pro-second referendum, but then a significant minority of MPs and also some key people around the leadership who are very against it. It's a, it's a very tricky position when push comes to shove and you actually finally have to show your cards, isn't it? It's extremely difficult. And I think in this sense um, that this has been a, a moment of reckoning that was always going to come for the, the Labour Party because I think there is a, a way of looking at it which would make the Labour Party actually more divided than the Conservative um, Party, Um, not least because of the position of members, but also because of the fact that you have a significant number of Labour MPs who really would prefer not to leave the European Union. But if you look at the votes that they've um, given in the indicative votes, are extremely nervous about freedom of movement continuing. And that's why I think on, on the Labour side, that there has been stronger support for changing the customs union part of the political declaration than anything that involves the single market. On the other hand, is is those Labour MPs and those members who are extremely committed to stopping Brexit via a second referendum are probably more committed to maintaining freedom of movement than any other single issue in terms of if you ask what in specific policy terms motivates that position. I think it's more complicated than that underneath um, it. And one sense, I think, one way of, of, of looking at the impasse that, that British politics has got to is, is there, you know, there, there probably is a majority uh, in the in, in Parliament that would agree the withdrawal agreement with really out, without that much um, difficulty. Um, and you've got a majority of Conservative MPs, including some in the ERG, who would accept single market. Um, on the Labour side, they don't want to accept single market. They're much more likely to want to accept customs union, which doesn't go down well in the uh, in the parliamentary um, Conservative Party. So actually finding what the common ground on which the parties can compromise in terms of a pragmatic way of implementing Brexit is extremely difficult. Dennis, I'm looking at a piece you wrote in this, uh, today's Irish Times. Few at Westminster expect imminent breakthrough in May. Corbyn talks. I suppose uh, the key word there is imminent, but the, the the overall trust of your piece is that you don't seem particularly optimistic either about that them achieving some something concrete. Well, I, I think it's very unlikely for all the reasons that we've, we're talking about that they'll be able to find a, you know, a common position because 
for either of them, you know, for the two of them to unite around a single common proposal that they would put to, uh, to Parliament would involve alienating such big parts of their own constituency. So, for example, it would be very difficult for uh, Theresa May to agree to a second referendum, whereas uh, for Jeremy Corbyn, uh, to, uh, he's under a huge amount of pressure from parts of his party and particularly his membership to uh, insist that any deal that's agreed should go to a confirmatory referendum. And so I think what's much more likely, but again, it's difficult, uh, is that they agree on uh, on a number of options. And the whole point of this, in a way, is to limit the number of options. And so you've seen over the last few days, uh, Philip Hammond, for example, suggesting that uh, that although he didn't favour a second referendum, that it's a perfectly legitimate idea and that it ought to be debated in Parliament. And so you've seen all of these uh, you know, statements floating around, which are you know, helping each of the two sides in a way to get into a position where they can say, we will accept this. So I think what you would find would be that there would be certain options that would not be put. And probably, for example, the option of revoking Article 50, and so just cancelling Brexit in Parliament, that that would not be put. And then you wouldn't also have some of the, uh, you know, the wilder uh, elements of the uh, of the Brexiteer side might not be put either. But even even to get to just agreeing on the menu of options, particularly given that uh, you know part of the deal would be that both sides would have to agree to abide by them. It's difficult because basically what you're saying is that uh, one of these four options is an option that I can not only live with, but I can continue to vote through and uh, you know, in Parliament and that, and that we make that the outcome of Brexit. And that's obviously something that's very difficult for both parties to do. And can I just ask you something which is in one way technical, but in another way fairly, fairly fundamental. Some people talk about a people's vote. Some people talk about a confirmatory referendum. Doesn't If... if, if it's, if they were to go down that route, isn't the key question is, what is that? Is, is a, a confirmatory referendum sounds to me like a, a pure yes and no to a single proposition. Um, but a people's vote sounds to me like a vote on whether Brexit goes ahead or not. Maybe I'm misinterpreting that. No, I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting that the, the language that have been pushed by the people wanting a second referendum has changed in the last well, week or so from people's vote to confirmatory um, referendum. It seems to me, though, that they're pretty much the same thing, which is what they've always been, which is asking for a second referendum on whether the UK should leave the European Union or not. And I think one of the problems um, that there is, uh, is that if that is the road that is gone down, and I think it would be an extraordinary risky road to um, to go down, but let's say for the moment it, it's gone down, then the option for leaving has got to be, to use that language that I don't necessarily like, a hard, a, a, some version of harder Brexit. Because if you ended up in a situation where something like Common Market 2 versus Remain was put, that wouldn't look like anything like a confirmatory referendum or even a second referendum. It would simply look like different options of Remain. And you would have, I think, you know, very large scale leave abstention. And then, although Remain would almost certainly win in those circumstances, there would be no legitimacy whatsoever, I think, um, to what occurred. So you couldn't, for example, see, because this is my understanding of what the phrase confirmatory means, you couldn't just see a referendum which was on whatever whatever deal was agreed by Parliament, ultimately a simple yes or no, without perhaps an adjudication on whether the Brexit process continues or not. I think the problem there is, is, is like, where, what happens if the answer is no? I mean, where does that leave the UK in relation to the, the EU? Is, sure. is, the, is the EU going to tolerate an extension to have that kind of referendum. I mean, I think it's an open question whether um, the EU via Macron is going to um, 
tolerate much of an extension at all, at least without a very, very clear um, you know, direction of um, travel. But I, I think a, a referendum that simply said, do you support this withdrawal agreement or not? And where the answer came back, no, when the answer came back, no, wouldn't get any of us anywhere. Yeah, probably leave us in a worse, worse position <laughs> again, Dennis, wouldn't it? Well, it would. And also, and I think Helen's absolutely right, that you have to have some option on the ballot. I mean, it's pretty clear that one of the options uh, would be to remain in the European Union. But the other option has to look at least something like Brexit. And I think that, you know, Theresa May's deal is probably the closest that you would yeah. get. That's probably the limit of what uh, Brexiteers would acknowledge as being recognisably Brexit. And anything softer than that, I think they really it would have a, a problem with legitimacy. I mean, that is one of the proposals, wasn't it, Helen? That was knocking around in the, um, the um, the indicative stuff over the last couple of weeks was that Theresa May's bill would be passed by Parliament, subject to approval by the people in a in a people's. It is. Vote. I mean, I think you could just about, um, as Dennis says, you could just about get away with. Though I think it would be difficult. You could just about get away with um, the withdrawal agreement plus the political declaration as it stands at the moment. I think once you move into changing the political declaration, then you make what was already an extremely difficult question near impossible. Dennis? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. No, I think it's uh, so I, I do think that all of this, uh, you know, every option for a second referendum is difficult. And particularly if you're getting into what we now seem to be getting into, which is this conversation about a confirmatory vote. So that in other words, you find some consensus in Parliament, which is going to be around something softer than Theresa May's deal. And that then you put that as uh, the option with the alternative being to remain in the European Union. It would be re- perfectly reasonable for Brexiteers to feel as if they didn't have a legitimate option to go for. Dennis, what's your read on? Do you think do you exp- do you think Theresa May expects to have her request for this particular extension to the end of June accepted? Or will the EU look for a longer extension or perhaps reject the application? Well, the the expectation here uh, at Westminster has always been that the Europeans would want to offer a longer extension, and uh, you know, and part of that is that if you look in the, in terms of the strategic interests of the European Union, it's there's no question, but it's in the long term strategic interests of the European Union. Union to keep the United Kingdom as a member state or as close as possible, certainly within the sort of economic area of the European Union. But the problem is that many of the leaders have short term interests which conflict with that long term interest. So, for example, while uh, Angela Merkel and the European Commission are entirely focused on that long term and would be inclined to go for the longest possible extension. Someone like uh, Emmanuel Macron, who Helen mentioned, he's got this problem of European elections coming up where there's a danger of uh, a sort of a toxifying effect of Brexit going into these elections. But then you have other leaders, like, for example, Sebastian Kurz in Austria. He argued at the last summit in favor of having the date, the cutoff date, the exit, the crash out exit date as being just before the European elections, because he thought that would help him uh, with the chaos, that the chaos would help him in terms of his uh, rivalry with force to the right of him, you know, the populist anti-European right in in Austria. So you've got all these different um, dynamics going on. You also have another problem, and this sounds trivial, but it's not, because it is to do with the human dimension, that on two occasions recently, uh, the, the, uh, the summit last month and the one in December, the European leaders were prepared to give Theresa May something better than what she got after she had spoken to them. And so when she goes in to make her case with them, she she often strikes exactly the wrong tone. And so they end up 
simply finding themselves less persuaded uh, by her case than they had been before she went in. And so, you know, there is a kind of a level of exasperation. So I think that, you know, probably the most likely thing as we're looking now is that they would offer a longer extension, maybe for a year, but it would have what they call now in this new coinature terminability, which would mean that the, that the moment that the UK was able to leave the European Union, it could leave. So they, you know, so if they find they can leave in the summer, that's just fine. And uh, in, so that's probably the most likely. There is a chance that they say, OK, you could have it till, uh, till the end of June. But the key thing there is that once uh, Britain actually does take part in the European elections, and as soon as you have MEPs from the United Kingdom, that extension can be extended again and again, at least for five years while that um, European Parliament is still sitting. There is still also a chance, I think, that uh, when they get into that room, that they will decide maybe that she hasn't made the case, that this process that she's talking about, that they don't really believe in it. And that, and so what they will say is that actually, you, we're going to give you an earlier date. And, and you're, we're going to effectively say, you know, we're not going to send you out of at the door on Friday, the 12th of, of April, but you've got an extra three weeks or four weeks uh, to get yourselves together. And of course, what that does at Westminster is it concentrates minds. And because it's so short, it completely eliminates the option of a second referendum. And so then everybody in Parliament would be faced with the choice of no deal sometime in May and a deal, either Mrs. May's deal or some version of it. Because that's ultimately where everybody's trying to get, isn't it? Um, is is to a binary choice of some sort. It is. I mean, I have to say, I don't quite understand why the EU um, backed away from the position that it seemed to have got into about uh, the EU Council about a month ago, where it looked like it was forcing that binary choice. And then Tusk made some statements that made it clear that a longer extension um, would be um, would be possible. And I think that th- there's a kind of there's a kind of difficulty that Theresa May faces here that goes beyond her you know, personality style and communication um, abilities. And that is, is that it seems to me that what the European um, the Council keeps wanting is her to tell them what will happen in the UK's democratic politics, such they can take that for granted in making their own decision. But that isn't anything that any UK Prime Minister could possibly deliver in these um, circumstances. We have a, a minority government that the party which supplies, um, which gives supply and confidence to that minority government is hugely um, unhappy with the withdrawal agreement and has in the past said it will bring the government down if that withdrawal agreement um, goes through, or at least it will stop voting for it in, in confidence um, votes. And then we have two divided um, parties. I mean, what we are seeing is a clash between what the EU expects to happen when it comes to it negotiates a treaty, member states deal with that. And what happens when you then have open, contested democratic politics interjected into that in very fraught political circumstances? That's true, Dennis, isn't it? There's, there's so, so, so little we can predict about how that is going to pan out. Well, it is, but, but, the, but the example that the, that the Europeans point to, and it was a really by the Danish Prime Minister in uh, December. And he was, uh, interestingly, he was one of the first to congratulate Theresa May uh, this week when she made her offer to Jeremy Corbyn. What they often point to is the experience of the Treaty of Maastricht in the early 90s when the Danes uh, rejected it. And what they did was that they got together the various factions in in the Danish Parliament and they worked out what it was that uh, they could accept. And so they they had a kind of a cross-party parliamentary process before they went 
to the Europeans or, or you know, in, in parallel with their negotiations with the Europeans. So they were able to go to the summit saying, look, this is exactly what will fly. We, you know, here is the majority. I don't have it in my party, but this is the cross-party majority that I've nailed down. And what the Europeans often complain about is that Theresa May never really did that, that she consistently, you know, they always felt there was an alternative majority to be found for a different kind of Brexit if she was ready to relax her red lines, but that she wouldn't go for it. And, I mean, and so that, 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 yeah, sorry. Now, I think that really is open to question, though, in the circumstances in which we, we find ourselves for the reasons that we said earlier about why we're both pe- somewhat pessimistic about whether this now uh, attempt at a cross-party agreement can A, be negotiated and B, be got through the um, through the House of Commons. I mean, because I think that the, the, the comparison that doesn't work in regard to the, the Danes and um, Maastricht is, is that you didn't have you know, a significant faction of the opposition party backed by large numbers of its members that are in the dominant political position at the moment in some ways within that party, having put um, the leader there, that wanted to accept the original, um, you know, that wanted to vote to ratify Maastricht as it was. In this case, the parallel being wanting to overturn the, the referendum result. So if you could get, you know, you got to the binary position in the Danes and the Maastricht case, and that's what we've never been able to get to here. But is there a misunderstanding there, perhaps, Dennis, in the, in the, in the Danish example, or the Europeans looking to the Danish example, that there are certain things that are inherent in uh, the British unwritten constitution and British parliamentary traditions that don't lend themselves to that kind of multi-party haggling that, we, that we're all familiar with from Borgen, that the, the binary <laughs> first-past-the-post system doesn't lend itself to that, and you end up with, as Helen says, these, these you know, really opposed factions within these two large parties. Yeah, no, I think I think that it's true, and and actually, to be fair, the Europeans they are familiar with it, but it's just that they find it frustrating. I think because uh, you know, if Theresa May comes and says, "Well, you know, I've got a very difficult political situation," and they all have very difficult political situations themselves, sure. or a lot of them do. And so what what it looks like from there is that uh, she is constantly uh, putting the unity of the Conservative Party ahead of other interests. And that, uh, you know, uh, and I mean, I think the other thing, if you look back over the last few months or the last couple of years, the option of the second referendum, which is now very much, you know, the wind is in its sails. If we were talking this time last year, uh, we probably would have said that the, uh, you know, that uh, the puff had gone out of that a bit, and you found that, for example, a lot of those Remainerish Labour backbenchers were embracing the idea of Norway Plus as being the best possible outcome they'd be able to get. And then things changed. So you now meet all these, uh, you know, Remainerish Labour MPs who absolutely won't touch Norway Plus with the barge pole, and it's you know in that usual sectarian way. They're just determined they need to kill off Norway Plus as soon as possible before they kill off anything else. And so, I mean, I think that had things happened earlier, you might have been able to get you know, a consensus around something, or at least a reasonable consensus around something that was Brexit, as opposed to what you're looking at now, where it's actually you know difficult to get most of the Labour Party behind something which really is Brexit. Although with a phrase we're all familiar with in Ireland, Helen, we are where we are. Yeah, we are where we are. And I have to say, I think that the Common Market 2 proposal, at least as it stands at the moment, isn't coherent. I mean, what what it says about the customs union and the backstop, you know, just it just doesn't add up at all. And I, and I think it does go back to this, the bigger problem. I mean, even if it was more coherent than it exists in the document as, as it stands, you're back to the problem that uh, in terms of a softer Brexit, to use that language, is uh, the Conservatives 
will you know are more happy or less unhappy anyway with single market and labor are more um, or less unhappy with customs union and that there's not actually the common ground on this on, on which bit if you like to make soft or Dennis, softer Dennis just, just just to wrap up can I just ask you about Helen mentioned the the DUP there and confidence and supply um the focus has obviously shifted away from the DUP over the last over the last week or two because of the way events have turned out do they have a significant role still to play in this they may do. Uh, what they said, oh, I was talking to one of them the other day, said to me that they're sitting back and watching her, Theresa May, collapse. And that, uh, you know, it may be that in these indicative votes, their votes will matter. If you look at the indicative voting, uh, I keep forgetting what day is or what week we're in, but whatever the last indicative votes were, this week I think it was, uh, where they in the previous round had abstained on two of the softer Brexit options. On this occasion, they voted against everything. And the reason they voted against everything was because one of the Conservative whips had told them that if they abstained, that one of them, the Ken Clark one or, uh, or, or one of the others, would actually have tipped across and would have won. So they're still, although they have, uh, you know, they're not working working with Theresa May on the Brexit policy, they still have their parliamentary connections with the, the Conservative Party. The confidence and supply arrangement continues. What they're hoping for is that uh, there will be a new Conservative leader. Uh, for them, somebody like Dominic Raab, a Brexiteer, uh, so, you know, Michael Gove is somebody they've uh, had long-standing relationships with. They were flirting with Boris Johnson for a bit, but they've gone off him for some reason. And uh, and so that they're hoping that somebody more uh, to their liking comes in. And then when the uh, the confidence and supply arrangement comes up for renewal this time round in the summer, they will then go for that and drive a very hard bargain because, as, uh, as this MP said to me, they will need us, whoever this new uh, person is, unless they want to have a general election immediately, the new leader of the Conservative Party will need the DUP. And then when I suggested that they would try to extract, uh, you know, uh, maybe two billion rather than a billion this time. This person quoted uh, what the uh, founder of the DUP, the late Reverend Ian Paisley, used to say about the European Union, which was milk the cow, then cut its throat. And that, that would be their possible, their approach. <laughs> I think we've got a title for, for today's podcast yeah. uh, uh, there. All right. Helen, um, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, the DUP have definitely still got a role to play because of indicative votes. I mean, if we're back to having options that, you know, like Parliament is 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 dealing with next week because there isn't actually a clear agreement between uh, and a positive way forward between Corbyn and May after these discussions, then absolutely every vote is going to count. We saw that the the other night on uh, on the um, Letwin, you know, Cooper motion where one vote made the difference. Yeah, I must so, say, listening to Dennis, though, there, if I, if, if I were a Labour Remainer-ish type MP and the prospect arose that if whatever was to pass through the Commons, passed through the Commons, and by the end of the summer you had a the DUP with the whip hand over a Dominic Raab-led Tory government, I would say, I'm not going to do anything to enable that. I think that that is the problem. I mean, there is an, uh, a problem that goes just beyond the DUP aspect of this, it goes to who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. Mm. And I think that one of the things that um, some of the people in the Labour Party in Parliament have got themselves into is saying essentially that um, we now can't vote for the withdrawal agreement because we don't trust who will be the next leader of the Conservative Party. It seems to me that this is quite a hard argument to make, even though it's clearly true, when they weren't willing to support the withdrawal agreement when it would have preserved Theresa May's leadership. (laughs) So... 
in that sense is is that they reap the consequences of what that they that they that of their earlier decisions in not supporting a withdrawal agreement that many of them actually didn't have any um, practical objection to. But as you said, we are where we are, and so we are aware that that Labour didn't take that opportunity, and they're now faced with a significant risk of a Conservative leader who is to the right um, of Theresa May. Finally, Dennis, I mean, I know we have some big things happening next week, including a European summit, but does this letter uh, ratchet up the pressure? Are we going to be having emergency podcasts next week or does it does it slightly kind of relieve the pressure? I think the, the thing is that uh, that uh, letter and Cooper bill, which uh, Helen mentioned, it's now going through the Lords and it's got one, uh, there's one element of it which is quite problematic. It, it, it means that Theresa May, before she goes to the summit, has to go to Parliament and uh, and get approval for the date that she's seeking for the extension. And that if uh, she goes to Brussels and they then come up with a different date, according to this legislation, she has to then come back to Parliament the following day uh, and get parliamentary approval for that, which obviously it makes um, it, it interferes with what they call the royal prerogative here, and it basically interferes with her ability to go and negotiate on behalf of the country. So there's a chance that that will uh, be amended on its way back from the Lords, but but certainly there's going to be a parliamentary moment before she goes on Wednesday, so on Tuesday, where she will have to put her case. Uh, I think that if you do get uh, some kind of a long extension, which is uh, you know what we seem to think is likely now a long extension extension with the option to leave early. That could be the trigger for some further resignations from her government, maybe cabinet ministers. It's a question also then of how her you know, potential successors are positioning themselves and uh, and judging what's the best moment for them to make their move. And uh, But I think certainly there'll be, there'll be plenty of drama uh, at Westminster next week and some in Brussels too. Dennis, Helen, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always extremely welcome to us. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.